snick back once again, refreshed and ready after taking on the New York Marathon. We're, I got a time of sub 3.30, which I was delighted with. And I'd like to say a big thanks to anyone that sponsored me. And even if you didn't, you know, the fact that you listen to the pod helps us working through it in my head what's running really is good for compartmentalising the pain. They tell you what though, those Americans know how to put on a show, don't they? I mean, the whole thing was bloody brilliant. And the organisation, the hundreds of thousands of spectators, I mean, the sunny day even, everything. So, well done America. And talking about American things, I need to give a shout out to Jenny from Chicago, who sent me a, uh, who sent me some cool messages about the pod. Go Bears, eh? Though, I'm a Dolphins fan. And you know what? I'm also a massive fan of Irish rugby. And you may have noticed recently that Ireland only went and beat the All Blacks. Like that makes it uh, um, like twice in 150 odd years and the first time ever at home at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. Now for anybody who isn't aware of the All Blacks, they are the Yankees of rugby, perennial winners and general all-round bastards though. They do play great rugby to be fair. So yes, Ireland beat them, beat them well and it was momentous. And while many savoured the victory with hugs and toasts, it also led to numerous wolf toners jumping straight onto social media and declaring how it shows what a unified Ireland could do. If only they would join together as one entity, almost like a weird version of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And yes, people are perfectly within their right to do this. Yet you have to wonder if they saw the irony in championing full island independence based on the result of a game brought to these shores by uh, the said colonial power. I'm not really sure they did. And why worry? As you know, A, it's funny, and B, it's easy to get carried away in such a moment. But then, when thinking about it a little bit more, it occurred to us here in a reverend history house that using the logic of said United Irelanders, that of great sporting achievements being used to to signify the awesomeness of nations, well, it can work in many ways. As rugby fans here, we follow not just Ireland, but other teams, including Bangor Rugby Club, of course, Ulster Rugby Club, and the British and Irish Lions. They are a collection of individuals from the teams of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. The best of the best, really, of the former British Isles, as it was once known. Well, the Lions toured New Zealand just last year, and actually scalped them in Wellington, in their own backyard. And as that is arguably a greater achievement, you know, to beat New Zealand on their own patch, we wondered, do the Lions also stand as representative of what we can achieve when we are one nation? Are these guys suggesting that Ireland rejoin the Union and put themselves once more under the banner of the Empire? I'd say probably not, but you know, be careful with your logic there. Now, along these lines, I've been having a bit of a debate recently with uh, how people are speaking about the reunification of Ireland. And how I kind of think it's a moot point, as it's never really been previously united. And one such occurrence was with a lovely fellow called Annals of Ulster. Uh, he's at Osterman, 1690 BC, and not to be confused with the similarly sounding Osterman, 1690, who left a nice review in iTunes. And if anybody else wants to follow his lead and tell Apple all about us, that would be cool. But Annals, and I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced, Annals pointed out to me that when I speak of Ireland as a whole never being united, I am referring to it in the modern frame of nationalism, you know, with a flag, a government, a standard army, all that sort of jive. But he was suggesting that I have to take off my 21st century lenses and look back, way back to what a country would be in prior times. And I can see where he's coming from, but it opens up the debate about just what is Ireland? Whose is Ireland? Is it anybody's? Everybody's? Yeah, it's mine. I mean, is it even Stevens there? Do the six need return to the O'Neills? Or is it the 26 that need to feel the Union Jack love once again? 
It's all a personal opinion and one that understandably inflames a lot of passion. So we thought this episode, with supporters of Irish Unity proclaiming that a United Ireland is imminent, and with Brexit in the backstop sounding like the title for some sort of silly sitcom, yet probably being the biggest event in a generation, we thought we would give the island of Ireland the irreverent history treatment and see if we can amicably discuss where the inhabitants of the island came from, who does it belong to, and how to solve the issue of Brexit. Well, maybe not the last one, but anyway, here's episode 017. It's my island. Oh no, it isn't. To learn of the past, the can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Wee bit of panther there, eh? But way back in yesteryear, there's a wee man called Ptolemy. He was a Greek. And a total map and math geek. He loved nothing better than to lure you around his house with the promise of a digestive and a cup of tea before boring the pants clean off you with his drawings of fantastical and faraway lands. He was a revolutionary though. Not in the let's topple the government and off with his heads type revolutionary, but the nice kind, like Pythagoras, Galileo or Bill Shankly. Through his maps we see the first use of longitudinal and latitudinal lines, as well as specifying terrestrial locations by celestial observations. Whatever that means, I'm, I'm not really sure, but it was written just like that in Wikipedia, so it's bound to be right, like, isn't it? But anyway, some even believe that St. Brendan, who we all know was the first man to actually discover America, don't we? Which he did as he set off across the Atlantic in the equivalent of a TP on water, known as a Kara, floating about the Atlantic for six months. What did he eat? That's what I want to know. Well, he is said to have used Platonomy's maps as he ambled around Ireland spreading the word before setting off on his voyage to America. Check out that map though, or at least the map someone else drew with his work. I'll post it in social media for a member. It does look a bit wonky, but it's still recognisable. And it's a good reference for, for suppose, little Irelanders wanting to get all doughy-eyed about life before the Brits showed up. As the Brits ruined everything, didn't they? I mean, apart from the sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, uh, I mean, what did the Brits ever do for Ireland? Or Hibernia, as the ancients may have called it. He also does something quite controversial. He references 15 rivers, 6 promontories, and 10 cities, though cities is a loose term. But here's the big punch. He names two capitals of Ireland. How the bus? What? Two capitals? We see this as they are both named Regia on the map, which may translate as royalty. One in Armagh, or Amon Maha, and one in the south, near Tarot or Nocnadala. Why is that controversial though? Well, it hints at two capitals. And what is two capitals? Two countries, that's what. So is that a suggestion of partition? Oh, partition, that's a trigger word to many in this island, isn't it? Over and above this, there seem to be five locations for Irish political power. Tara in Meath, Dinry in Leinster, Tahar Erin in Munster, Crew again in Connacht, and again, Eamon Maha in Ulster, which also hints at a provincial system of government, rather than like a centralised Ireland power. And if you're wondering, they're going, hey, he's got pretty good at the names, hasn't he? Has he been studying? Well... Not really. I've got a new Irish phonetics expert, so big props go to Mohara, Robbie Clark. But yet, who lived in Ireland and where did they come from? That's the biggie, isn't it? Who was your daddy and what does he do? Except at a much more ancestral level. Ireland back then was a place obsessed with myth and legend, fairies and fancy talk. I mean, some of the stories tell of giants and gods and wizards, of men who sacrificed themselves for your sins, and crazy spirit ladies that can make your wildest dreams come true. Many of these tales orally handed down from generation to generation. Granddad to grandson. Granny to granddaughter. 
suppose, but it's hard to separate fact from fiction. So while we would consider those histories as they are cool stories, we also want to try and focus on more evidence-based theories. No, no doubt there will be an interlap and we will flip between the two. And so, as it's almost Christmas, grab an eggnog, strap in, and let's get cracking. You mean Ireland? Yeah, it's mine. So what do we know for sure? Anything? Well, yeah, there's a few things. We can start with cold rain. And I know nothing much really starts in cold rain, apart from cheddar, the Causeway Coast, and, well, uh, humanity on this island. Yes, just south of the city is Mount Sandal. Uh, it's a forest park with runners and walkers and dogs shit like smeared in the green grass, but also hidden amongst the loose leaves and the leprechauns were found the skeletons of some really, really old people, like proper old, maybe about 10,000 years. That's even older than the DUP think the world is, which... It's a bit weird, isn't it? When, you know, the evidence is almost right under their eyes rather than up in the skies. Like, it reminds me of Bill Hicks and the Pranks of God. And if you've never heard of Bill Hicks, then honestly, put down your Justin Bieber dolls and Google him immediately. There's an app bit where he talks about the coincidence that those who believe in creationism also kind of look less involved. And it's not that I'm saying that the DUP seem less involved. Uh, no, not at all. Anyway. Remains were found at Monsandal, or Mount Sandal, to us commoners, and not just that of actual human bodies, but of civilization, of living quarters, huts, and fire pits, and even evidence of food like berries and hazelnuts. There's also flint axes and tools and pointy stick type things found nearby White Park Bay, which it seems was a hotbed for arms production in this period. The death machine conveyor belt was like churning out these weapons of mild destruction, and they were later to be found cracking skulls as far away as southern England and northern France. And I know these destinations are mere £89 return flights away nowadays, but but they were an exotic world away back when luxury travel was by donkey and you had to pack your own oar when you were on the fight the seven seas. You also have the Cajia fields, meaning flat top hill fields. They were found in County Mayo in Ireland, beneath a peat dog. Like there was formations of rock looking a wee bit weird and out of place and this drew a keen man's eye and it started an investigation that led to the uncovering of a field structure, including dwellings and tombs which dated back to 3,500 BC, which make it the oldest Neolithic farming site in the world. Also with the remnants of cattle and ploughs, it shows that they weren't Muppets, but actually advanced for their time, as they would have had to clear the land, irrigate and construct buildings, which again, Seems pissy idiots, but there's no B&Q to pop into and buy a chainsaw or a pop-up toilet, so it shows not only advanced technology, but also an understanding of plan and design and execution. Now to put this into perspective, the fields were formed before Stonehenge was built, formed even before the pyramids at Giza, and the show was no fluke also of Newgrange. Newgrange, for those who don't know, is one of a series of mounds in the Boyne Valley. Yeah! Alright, alright, settle down there, Angel. I mean, it wasn't even a decisive battle. Like, will we ever get past that? No. Anyway, these mounds contain stone passage tombs, the sort of thing that would give Indiana Jones soggy sheets. And Newgrange is the most famous of these passage tombs. And once a year, on the winter solstice, light fills the central chamber for about 18 minutes. I mean, is it a fluke? Aye, probably, said no one ever, though in one of those many programmes I watched during my intensive research project there was one professor who said, oh yes, we now have proof that this was deliberate, like as if it was ever in doubt. Well, we have our own expert, one Dr. Potts, and this is not to be confused with Dr. Potts, as this one's a lady. I was supposed to interview her, but my people talked to her people and we just couldn't get a slot to work, so I sent her questions over the phone and... She sent back a monologue that actually blew me away. It was way more in-depth than I had expected. She references my questions, which you will hear are quite shallow, but because her response was just so bloody good, I wanted to use it all. So what I'll do is I'm going to use a snippet, but I will add it to the end of the pod. 
so you can listen to that for that because honestly it's really really good it's really interesting Dugrange would be in my top three favourite archaeological sites. It's essentially a large megalithic passage tomb that dates to 3200 BC and it's part of a larger ritual complex of monuments in that area called Bruna Boyne. When you put the chronology of that in perspective, it's um, 5,000 years old and it's actually built 500 years before the pyramids and 1,000 years before Stonehenge. Thanks, Dr. Potts. You are the bomb. And do you know what else is the bomb? And Gran and Alia. It's a, it's a ring fort in Donegal with incredible views over Loch Swilly, Loch Foyle and the Inesoan Peninsula. And it's renowned for strategic importance and impregnable walls. It was built on the site of an Iron Age hill fort, which was supposedly built on the site of a previous fort that doubled as a burial monument for the dead son of Dagda. Of the two, uh, did Danan, gods that came to Ireland around 4,000 years ago. And we'll mention them again later. But I wanted to talk about Angrain and Alia because it's got a really cool story. It was passed from clan to clan until it became the seat of O'Neill Power from the 5th to the 12th century. But then, as they always do, the O'Neills take the piss just a wee bit too much and the O'Briens come in and erect it. Murder O'Brien, the King of Monster, decreed that each of his soldiers should dislodge a brick and take it home with him so the great seat of O'Neill would never stand again. But it's not like the wee sort of bricks you see today. I mean, these things were like boulders. And it's quite the trek back south, the monster. So many soldiers went, Eh, I murder, yeah, I got one in my backpack. It's all grand. When really, about three of them took them. So, it still stands. Albeit, with a wee rebuild in the 1800s, it was actually used by many Catholics as a place to worship during the penal laws. Which is some feat, as on a recent visit, the car even struggled to get up the bloody entrance hill. So if people are willing to scale those heights just to have a chat to God, then so be it. They probably had to leave on a Wednesday, though, to get there by the Sunday. But as a recent work colleague said to me, God doesn't give you something you can't deal with. Which is nice of him, isn't it? If God's a he, or whatever. But yes, you may be saying, well, this is all very interesting, but oh, what the fuck are you telling us this for? Well, I want you to have some context about the early Irish. To understand that these are, these complex creations are not the work of what many might think of as stereotypically dumb cave dwellers from yesteryear. You know, the kind of guys that wear unitard and carry a club. Now, these guys were smart, very smart, with incredibly creative skill sets. I'm sure there would have been monks in the society too, but aren't there always? I mean, just look at ours at the moment. I just don't want you to think that just because there's a historical mention of fairies and pixies, that that's what defines all these people. That they were just, well, wacky. However, conversely to that, many were no doubt off their heads at the same time. Just look at the drones in front of Newgrange, a structure which is said they have been built beside a fertile growing field of magic mushrooms. It's all squiggles and strange shapes, like the hippies out in San Francisco do. I also read a few reports that suggest Ireland was once almost overgrown with hallucinogenic plants, and there's anecdotal evidence of that today. As when I'm out walking with a dog in the local fields, I frequently see people with their doggy poo bags in hand, kneeling down and plucking something from the ground. I mean, at first I'm all like inwardly applauding their socially conscious actors group in the poop, and then you realise they ain't got no dog. So, I wonder what they're at. You mean Ireland? Yeah, it's mine. So, before we went all on about the architecture, we discussed the evidence of people being here in Ireland from about 10,000 years ago. But where did they come from? Did they just get Adam and Eve into somebody's garden? It's pretty doubtful, isn't it? The most convincing chat seems to be that they chased the ice. In what seems like a sort of shit plot for a disaster movie, a big block of frozen water was slowly covering much of Europe over thousands of years. But then even slowly, it, it 
kind of began to thaw and regress to the north. People followed the flow, moving towards Britain and Ireland, eventually peering across the English Channel from the European coast, staring at the, like, the white cliffs of Dover and thinking, oh, doesn't that look nice? Or maybe they just kicked off their kind of prehistoric clogs, hooked up their breeches and sauntered across Doggerland. Yeah, yeah, I know, it sounds like a theme park for nymphos, doesn't it? But it's the name of the landmass that once connected England to Europe. Yeah, it's the very land that sits beneath the English Channel as we speak. As the ice melted, Ireland was also connected to Europe via a causeway to Wales. And of course, the world-famous Giants Causeway on Ulster's north coast, built by the fair hand of one Finn McCool, don't you know? Also, he could go over and smack some sense into the Scottish giant Ben and Donner. However, as he got closer, Ben and Donner got bigger and bigger. And Finn didn't really fancy a scrap so much anymore, so he ran home and disguised himself as a baby. Now, Ben and Donner had seen him, chased after him, and... Weirdly, wasn't the sharpest tool in town either. He fell for the ploy, yet was smart enough to have the thought that if the burn was that big, then the dad must be bloody mahusive. So he scarbered off back to Scotland to think again. Slight sidetrack there, but the point is that Ireland was once connected to, by land to other land. It's still not too far off now, maybe about 100 metres in depth between being part of the British mainland again. A big old drought might just be the answer to solve a few of those border issues, eh? Wouldn't cause any other issues either, would it? Not that I can sort of think of. But way back then, Ireland's landscape was so covered in trees, from Malinhead in the north to Mizzen in the south, that Tarzan could literally don his leopard print pants and swing from end to end of the island if he so wished. Yet it wasn't long after that that he would start to struggle, as settlers needed to, well, settle, I suppose, and began clearing lands to create dwellings and fields. But just who were these people? Lorgola, the Book of Invasions, tells a semi-mythical history of the waves of people who settled in Ireland in earliest times. It says the first settlers to arrive in Ireland were a small dark people called the Firbulug, followed by a magical super race called the Tuha de Danan. They came in their flying ships and invaded Ireland, possibly from Norway, maybe two and a half thousand years before their Scandinavian brethren. These magicians only stayed for two centuries, but have roots in storytelling that can still be felt today. I see when you read them, it's hard not to go, hey, hey, that happened in the Game of Thrones, or whoa, that happened in Harry Potter. As an example, there's a king called Nutha or Gethlem. And he lost his arm in a fight, but it grew back, and a god replaced it with a bionic arm, covered in metal. And he also had a sword, Cleveu Shulish, or the Sword of the Light, a lightsaber of sorts. I mean, does that remind you of anyone? Look, I'm not trying to say people are stealing from these ancient tales, but there's certainly an overlap, isn't there? The two hooked at the land, according to the Book of Invasions, were defeated by the Malaysians, those with the dark hair and darker eyes from northern Spain. You may remember them from as far back as episode 001, Why the Red Hand. We discussed the story of how Ulster's most iconic symbol possibly emerged, a race between brothers, and a hand lopped off of their wrist. They were led by a man named Brogan. And you may think, that sounds a bit Irish. And you'd be right. As Jennifer Aniston said in the famous hair advert of the noughties, here comes the science bit. Modern DNA research into male Y chromosomes has found that the R1B haplogroup reaches very high concentrations in Western Ireland and the Basque country in northern Spain. Now I'm not going to pretend that I understand a subject so complex, but in the face of it, it seems that the northern Spanish and the Irish might have had a common male ancestor at some point in history. RTE, Ireland's national broadcaster, did a multi-million pound documentary on this very subject called Blood of the Irish. You can find it online for free. YouTube is where I found it, but other streaming sites are available. I thought it was a good watch, like it was interesting, it was a bit cheesy in parts, and they could have maybe cut half of it out, but the message was clear, basically that Western Ireland and Northern Spain have definitive DNA connections. Now, despite slagging off the documentary slightly, I'm going to pick a few points to discuss here. 
I mean, I may as well, because they've probably had a team of PhD boffins researching this for years, and I've basically been scrolling some notes in between work and whacking off. Like, they claim that we, Homo sapiens, basically come out of Africa 250,000 years ago and sauntered up the Ireland eventually, which kind of sticks up for the Doggerland story. It makes sense, as it would take a very long time to walk from the Congo. There's obviously no interrail or roads or whatever, and it must have been horrific, as I can barely get the kids to walk to the car, which is sitting outside the house, let alone trek through the wilderness for an eon or whatever it's called. They also say that in England, they found evidence of a number of homos from around about 750,000 years ago. Homo antecessor, I think it was called. And in Wales, they found human bones from the shores overlooking Ireland some 30,000 years ago. Yet Ireland's oldest find is within 10,000 years, so, you know, what's a day later? 20,000 years to build a boat? Don't think so. They also claim that Ireland had reindeer back then. And lemmings. Yeah, lemmings. Did anyone else think they were creation dreamed up to sell an early 90s computer game? No, just me then. But that reminds me, uh, definitely check my chat for accuracy if we're trying to win an argument using it. Definitely, honestly, 100%. Anyway, back to the documentary, right? It, it tries to explain what DNA is and how it is useful. But here's my take on it. All human genes are made up of these codes called DNA like a kind of computer program. They each have a role, and how they're expressed forms who and what you are. Now we're trying not to book, think about your mum and dad mating and creating you. This causes uh, like a merging of their DNA. Yes, permission to herald there. We will wait. Ready? Yeah, okay, right. So you end up getting a 50-50 split from both of them, and that will continue down the line. Now the DNA itself contains chromosomes, an XX for a girl, an XY for a boy, and the Y has to come from dad, and it will not change. So they pull out a big old microscope and can discover your paternal line, and this helps uncover where you may have come from. Clear as a cucumber? Brilliant. Then we add to the mix UEPs, or unique event polymorphisms, basically mutations. And these mutations help identify common ancestors or gene pools, almost like a fingerprint. An example of this is the Ards Peninsula, where the gene pool doesn't look like it's changed in a millennia, but you can always tell an Ards person no matter where they are in the world, as they all have six toes. Fact, well, sort of. Anyway, the documentary suggests that the same mutations or markers can be found in many people of the Irish and of the Basque regional stock. Some attribute this to the sinking of the Spanish Armada that tried to destroy Britain in the late 1500s. Spanish sailors caught up in the carnage swam short of the west coast and found rich pickings in the female population, worse than the Moors did when they conquered Sicily. However, they did a DNA test on one individual who looked pretty Spanish. The kind of guy who tans really waits in the toaster to pop, but sounded like the bastard child of Sinead O'Connor, Father Jack. He'd spat into a test tube a few weeks previous, and they were there that day to present him with his results. And incredibly, it confirmed the message they were trying to promote the whole of the programme, that he was not actually from Manistock, but had been on the island much, much longer. Ancient Irish, they called it, though he was definitely descended from northern Spain. He was all chuffed and he was so happy to be confirmed as a native. Yeah, I was thinking, ah, you're not a native. You've just been told your descendant came from the Basque region of Spain, albeit thousands of years ago. And that made me think about how long does it take to be a native of somewhere? What's the cutoff point? 800 years. That's a pro-Irish anti-Brit joke there, but it muddies the waters, doesn't it? If the ancient Irish are immigrants too, then who really has rights to the island? One question I do want to answer though is how do they know that the guy's relative wasn't an armada sailor from the Basque region? Would that not have given the same genetic mutations? Who knows, eh? This genetic stuff, it's wildly complicated as you would expect. On that note, you may remember that I got my DNA tested a few months back. Well, apparently it's been revised. It seems that I'm 25% more Viking than first reported. Now, that brings my heritage up from 3% to a whopping 4% Viking. Come on! 
Mains fan Carlson will be high-fiving in no time. Now, I was pretty chuffed for that, obviously, but the bigger swing was in my major heritage. Well, it seems that the testers could be in line with the pan-nationalist front, as I am now less than 50% British. That's a drop of 10%, and I'm now more than 56% Irish and Scottish. Oh, talk about eroding my Britishness. I am this close to joining up with the flaggers protesting at the City Hall. I mean, they still do that, don't they? I mean, all five of them? I don't know. Anyway, that's us though, isn't it? We're all from sunny Spain. Celtiberians. I mean, who wouldn't trade the north coast of Hispania for the blustery gales of the Emerald Isle? So let's close the chapter on that and... Wait, what? Other geneticists have other ideas? Ah, for fuck's sake. Well, okay, let's hear the crack. A genetic researcher from Trinity, Lara Cassidy, states that genetic affinity is strongest between Bronze Age genomes and modern Irish, Scottish and Welsh, suggesting establishment of central attributes in the insular Celtic genome 4,000 years ago. Now, I had to read that a few times, and there is a bigger passage that I've taken that from, but if I've understood it correctly, she's talking about when Ireland seemed to change from hunter-gatherer to farmer. It seems like some Bronze Agers with Eastern European DNA blew into town and took the current culture by the balls and squeezed, and it made the nation change. Not necessarily by war and violence, but look at it as diluting whiskey with water. I know that's abhorrent, but some havens actually did. It's still whiskey to an extent, but it's different, and these new folk arriving with skills like metallurgy and agriculture, they interbred, changing the bloodline and the culture, but not so much as to make it unrecognisable. The caveat is that they seem to be—they seem to have derived this theory from one body found in Rathen Island, on the north coast, the same place where Robert the Bruce met the gritty little spider. From that same skeleton, they also uncovered genetics common to the Celtic nations of Ireland, Scotland and Wales, suggesting that people were already living here at the time, which adds some extra layers of complexity to the already convoluted story. Now, these, migration, these migrations may have come from a later influx of people that the Greeks called Keltoi. Celts, meaning barbaric. Could they have been chased there by the pesky Romans? Those who pushed deep into England and Wales but couldn't get over the boggy lowlands of Scotland, nor through the shitty mist of Ireland. Leaving those areas to the Celtic masses, who'd fled the terror of the Sword and Sandal Brigade? Possibly. And talking about those with perhaps an undeserved label of being totally barbaric, the bloody Vikings. They sailed to Ireland and created cities such as Waterford, Wexford and of course Dublin. Where they did... Uh, a fair bit of enforced procreation to corny euphemism, which further modifies the gene pool, but then set up home for a century or two and brought great trade to the island. Also, I have to say that I hear a lot online about the 800 years of British occupation on the island. But the first invaders from that 800 odd years ago, were they not actually French, albeit under the guise of an English crown? Well, sort of, as I think they were from Normandy, home of the Norseman. So, that was the bloody Vikings again, wasn't it? And that opens up another question. As if they were the founders and the first inhabitants of some big cities, including Dublin, should they not be able to lay a claim to the great city? Is Dublin currently an occupied territory? Should we invite the King of Norway round for a cup of meat and seal them up the left to inspect his family land? Probably not. But it's good to remember for an argument, isn't it? Now, one of the invasions that did come under the actual English crown was a Cromelian one. And as you cats already know, Cromwell paid many of his soldiers with land that he uh, uh, um, liberated from the enemy. 
and many of those soldiers had a look around at the scenery and greenery and thought, you know, it's Ireland's spot ain't too bad after all. So they settled here, taking on the cloak of the Irish, blending with the environment, just like kind of, you know, Rambo did in First Blood when Will Teasel and his squad chased them up the mountain. The Cromwellians took on the customs and clothes, embraced the religion and music and the culture. Was this a conscious choice? Perhaps for survival, to fit in with the locals? Or here's a mad suggestion, maybe, just maybe, they actually just enjoyed being here. Kind of like the old English lords had done a few hundred years before, but for the purposes of this chat. Whatever the reason was, it just adds further nuances to the bloodline. And bloodline really is a big thing to some. They want to be able to say that they are indigenous, they are no mudblood, that they can trace their descent all the way back to Brian Brew's ball sack. Because, you know, their granny said they can't. Well, they're a bit mental, aren't they? Almost declaring that because they think they have this lineage, that they are of pure stock, a pedigree, better than everyone else. It almost seems that they're sliding into the realms of Herrenvolk, a master race. And I'm not sure if you know, but the last kind of person to do that didn't really turn out too well for the whole of the world. You mean Ireland? Yeah, it's mine. I hope you're still following this as we are jumping about a lot and it's a bit rushed because I've been really lazy since the marathon and you know just eating and putting on all the weight I lost and also I've been drinking quite a bit of rum tonight so I'm probably slurring my words but remember if you have any questions or just want to say hello you can contact me on Facebook at the Reverend History of Ulster page or at a Rev History on Twitter but before I top up once more let's jump again this time to more scribed history rather than scientific Julius Caesar, a man who would have loved to have invented a stab-proof vest, wrote that there were two populations in Ireland, the natives and the Belgic Gauls, those who crossed looking for war but eventually settled down after deciding that mingling and banter was more crack. Before him, a guy called Pythias of Massalia, he steered a boat around the island in 325 BC. This guy was a Greek geographer and he called the two islands of Britain and Ireland the Isles of the Britanni. Who the feck are they, I hear you ask? Well, upon the formation of the Irish Free State, everyone got a lovely little propaganda handbook written partly by Ian McNeill, an Irish historian. They wrote that while the Celts were still newcomers to Ireland and Britain, the inhabitants of both countries were known to them by the name Britanni or Gretani. From Britanni seems to stem the word Britain, and from Gretani come, comes the Irish word Cruheen. The Cruheen, later demolished by the Ula, who gave their name to Ulster, were Picts. Same as those found laterally in Scotland, same as those Nile of, Nile of the Nine apparently battered to form his Dalriada, or Irish Kingdom, in the west coast of Scotland. And then there's another sciencey type paper that divides Ireland into ten different genetic regions, with seven being Celtic and three mixed between mostly Scottish and Irish ancestry, with those three being found in Northern Ireland, which makes sense. My God, I mean, honestly, read that paper. It is, I think I got about two paragraphs in and then had to lie down. One thing that the paper does make clear are the connections between Scotland and Northern Ireland. They are so vast in genetics, culture, stories, etc. So much so that the DUP want to build a bridge to Scotland, metaphorically, symbolically and physically connecting the two nations. Oh, wouldn't it be beautiful just to head over to Scotland on a day trip? And for Scots to come here, quick and easy, replicating the journeys that many past generations took, but at a much faster pace, obviously, cruising along the Reverend Ian Paisley Bridge. Ah, oh, it'd be bloody lovely. But there would be a toll for most people, of course, wouldn't there? Though not the Presbyterians, as they will be free. Yeah, that's a shite religious joke there, so just ignore that and move on. But to take us full circle, we can go back to some architecture that the Scots and Irish have in common. Megaliths. And they may sound like the gods from some fantasy novel, but they are ancient stone formations. Not quite in the ilk of Stonehenge, a bit smaller, but still kind of cool. They can be found all over Scotland and Ireland, suggesting a cultural link from thousands of years ago. And that ties in nicely with my DNA. So that's cool, isn't it? There's even one in Conleg near me. 
the legendary con stone. It's con like means stone of the hound in Gaelic. And if you're a keen golfer and ever get to play a Clandy Boy golf club, you may hit it if you overshoot the 18th green. Also check out the dolmens all over Northern Europe. They look like adats from Star Wars, and not just towards thoughts of a shared culture there too. And equally, it makes you wonder just how they manage to get the stones to stand up. I mean, these things must weigh tons. But it's just another question to add to the ever-expanding list, isn't it? In the Book of Invasions, there's a line that says, The truth is not known beneath the sky of stars, whether they were of heaven or earth. It's talking about the two Adatanan. But just focus on the first line, the truth is not known. And I'm going to take it out of context and change it a little and make it say, we do not know if we know the truth yet. And you may be shocked to hear that this is the end of the podcast. And I hope, hope you are listening to this with the expectation of getting a definitive answer as to who the Irish are, as we can't give you that. Neither can the stories and tales and despite what they say, neither can the old folk. Science is trying, but it just isn't there yet. Maybe it never will be. But for now, I just rest assured that we are a mongrel race here in Ireland. Get more mongrel all the time. So instead of going crazy, just chill out. Realise it meant while many of us are different, we're also really, really similar. And this is the bit I don't understand. And I maybe never will. And just like we don't really understand where we're from, I don't really understand where we're going. There seems to be so much anger in Ireland. So much rage. So much hatred. For people that are so similar, it's scary. But it's almost Christmas. So let's end in a good note, eh? You know what I mean? Happy Christmas. Or whatever holidays you choose to support. And remember, listen to the full Dr. Pat's chat after the tune. It really is worth it. It's really smart and elegant. And it's kind of like having Nirvana's hidden tune at the end of one of their albums. Which one is it again? Uh, never mind. Can't remember. Though, to be fair, the fact that I'm telling you about it means it's not already hidden. Anyway, don't be pedantic. Here's Alan's call to play us out. Enjoy. Letters. top three favourite archaeological sites. It's essentially a large megalithic passage tomb that dates to 3200 BC and it's part of a larger ritual complex of monuments in that area called Bruna Boyne. When you put the chronology of that in perspective it's um, 5,000 years old and it's actually built 500 years before the pyramids and a thousand years before Stonehenge. The structure itself is essentially 85 metres in diameter and it consists of a 19 metre long passageway and as you go down that you enter this large central chamber 
And from there, there's three small annexes. The monument is surrounded by 97 curbstones, and most of them are decorated with symbols of megalithic art. And what's really interesting is most of those stones in on the outer surface have been quarried locally, but the larger curbstones have actually been brought from both Wicklow and County Down. And the majority of them do not weigh less than a tonne, so they've been transported via the Irish Sea and then along the River Boyne to the site. The cremated remains of five individuals were actually found within the chamber during early excavations, but it wasn't until a series of later excavations that the significance of the site in terms of the summer solstice was discovered. So essentially there's a small light box above the entrance to the passage tomb, and on the shortest day of the year, Newgrange is perfectly aligned that the sun during the winter solstice will actually shine through the light box and then illuminate the entire passageway into the chamber and fill that area up for 17 minutes every year. So it's not so much as how did the people that built Newgrange tell the time, it's more how invested early farmers are in understanding seasons um, and celebrating the start of the new year. But there's also a strong argument for if you have this ritual connection with burying your dead, there still is a celebration of life and a connection to the land. So the site itself has potentially many uses over its period, but the ritual significance of astrology and the importance of that to community is really highlighted in the fact the amount of man hours it would have taken to build such a monument. It's estimated it would have taken 300 people 20 years to actually build Newgrange. Um, although that figure is criticised for actually being not not enough manpower, it just shows the investment in time a society was willing to make to make this structure, especially when considering that they wouldn't have actually had metal tools. Um, how did you get in through the entrance? Newgrange <laughs> um, is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, and it's why I really enjoy it that because it's five thousand years old. It's still incredibly immersive. You can go inside it. Um, they have a thing where they've recreated the winter solstice. So, I think sixty people a year can actually enter the lottery for to be in the chamber during that time. Um, but unfortunately, I've never won, and you'd be very lucky if you did. Um, but they've recreated like a sort of light show that would simulate what it's like to be inside the chamber. Um. Like you say, the real thing actually lasts 17 minutes, but their recreation only lasts a couple. But still, it, it, it's, it's a, but still, it's a really great experience. You have to go down the actual passage tomb. It's incredibly small. The rocks are sort of hanging over. You're having to hunch. It's pretty dark. And then they have done a really good job in actually recreating it, what it would be like. Do you think it is deliberate? Um, yes. <laughs> Interestingly, actually, um, the Winster Solstice now doesn't fill up the last like two or three centimeters of the chamber but if you calculate for the tilt of the earth's axis over five thousand years it would have perfectly um aligned in a way that filled up the, the chamber exactly so it's incredibly accurate considering like you don't have like the technology during the neolithic you know there are no metal tools there's, there's just there's just there's nothing really and yet they've built a chamber that is perfectly waterproof um has not been repaired in terms of its roof they somehow managed to shift stones that they, i think the top capstone is twenty thousand tons it's estimated and yet it's still perfectly intact and that level of technology but yet the level of engineering is just you know just a complete contrast um did they have a gift shop 
I mean, obviously not in the Neolithic, but yes, there is a gift shop at Newgrange. Of course there is. It's Northern Ireland. It's Ireland. Um, did I buy anything? No, I entered the lottery, but I'm sure I probably ate something while I was there. Of course I did. 